Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Ebersole, and I'm delighted to be joined by the poet and critic, Dana Joya. Dana Joya's deference to poetic tradition and artistic beauty is intolerable to those who hear ideology in every linguistic expression of human experience. But what ideology is at play in the poet's response to having lost a child? More broadly, what ideology is present when our bodies respond with pleasure to the music of words? What ideology is at play when form is not is used not to preserve some aristocratic sensibility, but to protect the self, rich or poor, from its own nature? And what ideology is at present in a poetry that celebrates the act of reading by seeking common ground with the reader? Ideology is not at the root of Dana Joya's Pity the Beautiful. Instead, one discovers an uncanny humility in his poems, sadly so foreign to most of us in our age of boasting, an age that only exists because we let others convince us we lack so much. But it isn't that we lack so much, but that we sense that this world is not quite our home that there is another home hidden from us, a home poetry, and Dana Joya's poetry is best equipped to help us find. Dana Joya, welcome to New Books and Poetry. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Before uh, we get into your extraordinary new book, I was hoping we could kind of rewind and kind of discuss where you were born and raised, and ultimately, how did poetry end up finding you? Well, I uh, am a working-class Latin kid from L.A. Uh, I was born in a sort of a working-class town called Hawthorne in southwest L.A. Most people know it uh, through the movies because Quentin Tarantino filmed Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown in and around Hawthorne, you know, actually some of the places I grew up in. Um, My father was a Sicilian, and he was a cab driver when I was born, Uh, went through several um, other jobs in the course of his life. My mother was Mexican, and uh, she worked at the phone company. And uh, I was raised in a very, you know, tight knit um, Sicilian family in a Mexican neighborhood. Uh, had 12 years of Catholic school, and uh, I became the first person in my family uh, to go to college. Now, ironically, I think what uh, got me interested in poetry, what made me a poet, was not so much a very fine education that I got eventually at Stanford and Harvard, but the fact that um, my family liked poetry. My mother, who didn't have much education, treasured uh, the poems that she had memorized in elementary school. And actually, a lot of my Italian relatives uh, knew poems in English and Italian. And my Mexican grandfather, um, who was a um, you know, a bit of a rascal in a lot of ways. I very rarely saw him sober. Um, loved poetry and would spout it, you know, 
I grew up um, in a in a family in a clan, which uh, was not in the least intellectual or literary, but considered poetry, you know, one of the pleasures of life. I should hesitate. Um, uh, you know, in that a little bit, because the poetry they liked is not probably the poetry that Helen Vendler prefers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was you know, popular poetry of the age, although some respectable poems made their way into it uh, by accident. And uh, so it was simply part of my my milieu. Hmm. And I talked to a lot of poets, and you know, they always kind of cite a certain class or a teacher. And uh, so you kind of cite the classroom that was the home. That's very interesting. And so as you kind of went through your academic life, did uh, did you ever consider taking a profession kind of more geared to the literary arts, or were you ever always kind of set on a more uh, kind of uh, a course towards business? Well, the business has really quite, happened quite by accident, but well, I'll back up. When I was younger, music was the art that interested me the most. I played the piano, then I learned clarinet, I learned saxophone, I did classical music, jazz music, did some pop music, and I really thought I was going to be a, a musician or a composer. Um, most of the instruction I had in poetry was not very good. I mean, we didn't get much of it in school, and um, the teachers were relatively relatively dry. I mean, I guess I had a good Shakespeare uh, you know, teacher in high school. So I got a look, a taste for Shakespeare. Um, but what happened was that when I was 19, I was very unhappy in college. You know, when I was at Stanford, I was just miserable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was because, you know, I went from a very working class place into a very privileged place, and it just struck me as deeply alien. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took a fellow, you know, I got a scholarship to study in Vienna, where I was doing music in German. And oddly, uh, reading German, reading German poetry, uh, speaking German during the day, I began reading poetry in English, German, and began writing poetry. And in the course of that year, I realized that I wanted above all else to be a poet. Mm. Uh, and that music was, you know, was an interest, but it wasn't really my life. And I came back to America at the age of about, you know, uh, 20, 1920, determined to be a poet. And then I sought out, um, you know, opportunities for that. I never took writing classes. I mainly took literature classes. I felt that to be a poet, you really should read as much poetry as possible. Began learning French. Uh, I'd been raised speaking a dialect of Italian. I, I soon began learning, you know, uh, Tuscan, you know, literary Italian. Mm. And I sort of immersed myself into that. And I went to graduate school for a couple of years. I went to, uh, to graduate school at Harvard. It was really a pretty good place for a poet to be at that point. I mean, I had Robert Fitzgerald as a teacher. Elizabeth Bishop was my teacher. Mm. Robert Lowell was there. Octavio Paz was there. Northrop Fry was visiting. Brilliant, Mm. brilliant teacher. Uh, And what happened is that being at Harvard, I realized two things. That, yes, I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to write poetry and write about poetry. But, two, I didn't want to be a literary theorist. Right. And that's what we were, they were beginning to train us to be. I was being taught to to write poetry and write about poetry in a way that the people I came from couldn't understand. Mm. And that seemed a mistake. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm a very intellectual guy. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a you know homespun cracker barrel philosopher. But it seems to me that one should write. 
poem in a way that's inclusive, you know, that has a broad audience. I mean, a poet would hear it one way, a non-literary person would hear it another way. Mm. There would be something for both of them in the poem. And I frankly didn't know how to write that kind of poem. I wanted to write that kind of poem. Shakespeare was writing that kind of poetry. Um, Frost was writing that kind of poetry. And I had to figure out how to do it, and I realized I wasn't going to learn at Harvard. Hmm. So I, I, even though I was doing very well in the program, and I was in you know, some ways, it took me years before I, I lived as well as I did as a house tutor uh, at, at Harvard, um, you know, because they give you free room and board, you know, uh, I decided to, you know, to quit, and I went to business school because I figured I had to have a job. And Wallace Stevens and T.S. Eliot had both worked in business, so I figured it could be done. And so um, I am the only person in human history who went to Stanford Business School to be a poet. <laughs> Fantastic. And let me ask you, when you entered that business world, uh, you know, I think a lot of poets don't have insight into it, but it can be an extremely dynamic space for people uh and it's interesting what did you i imagine in the positions you were in you had to be very inner directed you are naturally a high achiever and that you had to navigate that business world did it how I, i'm wondering how that world were you able to keep them extremely separate from the poetry world or did you I, find i kept them absolutely separate you did you know there's a funny uh, anecdote. I think it's uh, oh, um, somebody, one of the Yale professors had invited Wallace Stevens, Louis Martz, maybe he was the fellow, um, to give a reading. And he picked Stevens up at the train, and Stevens had his briefcase, and he opened the briefcase and he said, This side is business, this side is poetry, and my lecture. And uh, I did not let anyone I knew in New York, in the business, in any aspect of my business life, no, I was a poet. Right. And um, so I kept it entirely separate. And for, and for some years, I didn't publish any poems. You know, I felt that what I had to do was to perfect the kind of poem I wanted to write. And so every night, I would come home, and I worked uh, five or six nights a week. Um, and, you know, pretty much had almost no life except my business job and uh, and my writing. Um I married, I mean, the nicest thing about going to Stanford Business School was that I met the, the girl that I married. You know, she, she, Mary and I have now been married for uh, 32 years. And, yeah. you know, and, um, and, but my wife is a very, you know, private person. She loves to read. So, you know, we'd come home at night from our jobs and she would read, you know, Jane Austen or Anthony Trollope or Agatha Christie and I would work. And so we had a life that was, you know, that was work, writing, and then a very intimate, you know, quiet marriage. Um, and it went on, you know, for this way until, you know, I started publishing poems uh, about six, maybe years after I went into business. I'd been working on them every night, mm. and I never sent them out. And finally, the editor of the Hudson Review, Frederick Morgan, you know, who I knew somewhat demanded that I do it. I wouldn't send them, and I wouldn't send them. Finally, made me promise. So I sent him some poems, and he put six poems of mine immediately, rather than waiting two years, which he usually did not send them, immediately in the front of his issue. The editor of The New Yorker called me up and asked for poems. Uh, Joyce Carol Oates asked me for poems. Poetry asked me for poems. And so I went from, I wouldn't publish in The New Yorker, by the way, uh, because I was afraid people at work would see it. 
Um, and so I, you know, I went, you know, really from not being published at all being the best places. And then Esquire magazine was doing this silly thing called Men and Women That Are 40 Who Are Changing America. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to include me in the list. And I told them I didn't want to be in the list. And they told me that I wasn't the person that decided. And so when that came out, um, it was in 1984, I think. It was before I had published my first book of poems. At this point, I was publishing lots of essays and lots of poetry and things like this. They chose me as you know one of these people changing America, and then people at work at Esquire. Can I ask you a so, quick question? So I was, my cover was blown. Yeah, exactly, and I want to talk about that cover real quick. You almost speak about it like one could easily contaminate the other. Why were you so vigilant about keeping poetry and business separate? Well, um, it didn't do me any good. You know, when I was in the business world, it was, a, it was somewhat different from what it is now. It was very militaristic. It was by people that had been vets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and they were, it was a very, you know, authoritarian structure. And if you were, if they thought you were a poet, you know, they would think that you couldn't do your, you couldn't do arithmetic. Right. You couldn't be trusted. And I figured it wouldn't do me any good. Yeah. Um, so by the time that they, by the time that, that they knew I was a poet, I was, you know, I was, you know, done very well in my career and they knew me. And, uh, you know, it was very funny that my boss, you know, brought me in. You know, this, he used to be a, a, a Marine combat officer, mm-hmm. brilliant guy, by the way, kind of like Sergeant Fury, in it, you know, from Sergeant Fury's <laughs> howling commandos, always chewing on a cigar. <laughs> and he came in and, he, and I was asked to come into his office and he says, DG, because he called everybody by their initials, <laughs> he goes, DG, someone told me you wrote poetry. Oh, no. And I said, yeah, Greg, yeah, I do. And he looked at me with sadness and went, shit. <laughs> you know, you know, it was this was like a profound disappointment. Yeah. He liked me, and he didn't. He, you know, it was like you know, learning that I had a criminal past. Right, it's going to be like something this. he had wrestled with now. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, so um, you know, but I, but I've, you know, I, I really do. I know this sounds odd, but I think one of the problems in the poetry world nowadays is that it's, it is very social. It's professional. It's you know, people want wants to put you know Dana Joy a poet on their office door. Right. And I always felt that um, it's good to, to make it as private as possible. You know, that you need to create a certain amount of silence around your poetry to be able to hear it. And uh, I always regretted, um, you know, that I lost my anonymity. I think, you know, I think it was easier to write in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the same way, the six, seven years I'd never sent a poem out were the, were the years of very great artistic growth for me. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, but anyway, life take your know, life takes you to places that it wants you to go, and you don't really need to choose. And I found I found that out the hard way. Definitely. And tell me about how the uh, well, one, it must have blown your mind when the Hudson Review and what followed after that. Um, tell me about how your first book came together and what that meant to you as a poet. Well, the thing is that uh, I was you know, I've been very lucky. You know, I, it, you know, life is kind of weird. It sort of, you know, gives you the opposite of what you're looking for, you know. And I d- didn't work a lot of published books. So people were always like, they'd, they'd ask me to publish my book. And I'd say, I don't want it, you know. And so finally, I met this guy who was starting off this press and uh, named Scott Walker. He was starting a press called Grey Wolf. Yeah. And um, so we did a book of, I was editing you know, a poet that I've, that I've worked very hard for now uh you know, really nearly 40 years to rescue from the obscurity is named Weldon Keys. Yeah. I wrote the first essay on Weldon 
these, but I edited his stories, and so Scott, you know, did that, and I really liked working with him, and um, I respected his values. I mean, he was somebody who really cared about uh, literature, and so he wanted to do my book, and I said, when my book is ready, I'll give it to you. In the meantime, I had two New York publishers, uh, one of whom was very eager from the beginning, you know, and one who was more fashion, you know, conscious. But because I was public, because I was becoming so well known, they wanted to do it, and you know, so I uh, and I said, no, I'm going to go with Grey Wolf, which was a tiny press at that point in yeah. Townsend, Washington, and it was just in the process of moving to St. Paul, and so I gave my first book to Grey Wolf, and I've been with Grey Wolf now for. Um, 29 years. Yeah, they're an extraordinary press. Yeah. And, yeah, go ahead. You know, and they're, they're wonderful people, and, and they believe in literature in the same way that I believe in literature. Um, and so I had this book come out called Daily Horoscope, and it became um, an extraordinarily controversial book. Hmm. Uh, it was praised and it was attacked uh, because about you know, my, my work has always been about one-third in free verse, yeah. one-third in meter without rhyme, and about one-third rhymed. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, roughly. But since you know, two-thirds of the book was metered or, you know, rhymed, uh, it was looked as this uh, statement, you know, you know, about, you know, in terms of what was then called the poetry wars. Mm-hmm. And so I had the, the, the luck uh, of being attacked at enormous length, you know, by people who blamed everything on me. You know, it was like, you know, the, the <laughs> capitalist, the corruption of the capitalist system was a direct result of the notorious. Right. On top of this, I had the audacity of being a business, of working as a businessman. Yeah. You know, and uh, and I had also been very, you know, I, I, I take prose seriously. I think a poet uh, is healthiest in a, in a, you know, in a culture where people talk about things and argue about things and review books. And, and so I was, you know, a very outspoken critic. So, so I had an enormous number of, of reviews, uh, published on my work. Not all of them, you know, dare I say, not all of them favorable. I mean, I had sure. some outlandish attacks. You know, you know, one critic said that I was probably not even any good in bed. Um, you know, I mean, this is you know, it's an odd you know comment, but uh, it's an odd critic. Uh, and so, um, and what happened is that my book, along with a couple, maybe two or three other books like *The Crimson State's Golden Gate*, became the focal point yeah. for the emergence of a, of a poetic school that has been called New Formalism, right? Which has not never been a name I like, but you know, we kind of have to accept it at this point. Exactly, and. Wh- what do you think of, I mean, I know you've talked about this a lot, but in retrospect, uh, what are your thoughts about the whole, like you said, the new formalist kind of, uh, well, I, you know, like, yeah, what do you think, looking back now, what do you think of it? Well, let me say something that may sound self-serving, and I apologize to you and your listeners. <laughs> That's um, right. I said certain things in the 80s. And what I said basically was that I think a poet should be free to write a poem in any form he or she wants. For uh, um, you know, uh, formal verse, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, sure, sure. And this was considered outrageous. Right, uh, right. Um, 30, are you getting that, that strange sound on the, on the line? I did for a moment. I don't know what it is. I think, I think maybe somebody is probably trying to use the phone at my house. Let me start that all over then so you can cut that one section out. Uh, uh, you know, back in the 80s, uh, you know, I... 
uh, said something that many people thought was outrageous, and it was that you know, the poet should be free to write in any style or form that he or she thinks the poem demands, you know, free verse, formal verse, rhyme, experimental forms, fixed forms. And people attacked me because uh, meter and rhyme were considered anti-American, anti-democratic, elitist, European, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, 30-some years later, my opinion is mainstream. Everybody agrees with it. Right. Um, so I think, you know, what happens is that culture tends to move through argument yeah. to new positions. And uh, it's uncomfortable to be in those arguments, but I always felt that I was right. And the reason I felt that I was right is that a lot of the people I was around were very intelligent, non-literary people. You know, they read novels, they went to serious movies, they listened to jazz, and they were sort of intimidated by poetry. But they loved, um, you know, if you'd read them, you know, a poem by Elizabeth Bishop, a poem by Philip Larkin, they'd love it because it engaged them. Yeah. And one of the things that engaged them was the music of it. The narration, the situation, mm -hmm. uh, and and I felt that you know what I wanted to do was to write the kind of poems that I really liked to read the most, and that also seemed to talk about you know my, my own life experience the most. Uh, I admire a certain kind of what you call them, seraphic poet, you know, a poet who's writing about consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. um, I don't. Particularly, you know, I don't think I write that kind of poem very well. In fact, I don't think many people do. I, you know, one of my favorite poets is Rilke. But Rilke is a pretty hard poet to emulate. Yeah. And he's operating on a level, you know, that's that simply happens at a certain point in cultural history. So anyway, um, um, but you know, I think it was clarifying for me because I realized at a very early age that if I wanted to do what I wanted, some people were, were going to get upset about it. Yeah. And I also learned that. Um, that if I, that there would always be people in the literary establishment who disliked me. And and there's two ways of reacting to that. One is to say, well, I'm going to get, get back at those SOBs. Right. But I began thinking about it. And, you know, it comes out of my values. You know, I, I told myself I would have no enemies, hmm. uh, which is to say I would not put any of my energy in a kind of a dark place. You know, yeah. where I'm, I'm worried about my enemies. And what you find out is if you, if you decide to have no enemies, it frees your soul up. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have more energy, and, and you're able to do what it is that you want to do. And I also said that I would never worry about winning prizes. Uh, you know, I've never applied for a fellowship. I've never done anything you know, uh, that would put me, you know, in a, in a sense, in that you know, kind of culture where I have to worry about those things. And I would just try to write poems that were beautiful and true. Well, I now, think was another question, but that's what I what I wanted to do. Absolutely. And when we think about the book that was just published, City the Beautiful, do you see a particular arc or growth or different sensibility, or how do you view this book in context of your other works? Well, you know, it's really quite quite interesting. You know. Um, my, you know, if you look at my first book, I was doing three or four things at the same time. And almost all of those, you know, I've continued to develop, almost you know, develop a narrative poem. One is to develop a very song-like poem. One is to, you know, you know the, to develop a kind of, of intricately musical, almost symbolist poem. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, I, I think for, you know, it's really odd. Something I like in poem, my favorite poets have this. W.H. Auden has it, Elizabeth Bishop has it.
it. Philip Larkin has it. You know, in a, you know, uh, which is variety. Yeah. If you turn the page, you can never predict the poem that's on the next page. Uh, and so I've always said, you know, variety. Now, what's happening, you know, so when people are trying to make sense of my career, they, it, it's, it's more difficult because it wasn't like I was doing one thing and I did something else. But if you ask me, I think my poetry over the, you know, the four books I've published, the first being in 1986, but, you know, really this, you know, work goes back to the late 70s. Um, my poetry has actually grown simpler, hmm. more direct, more overtly emotional, and more complexly musical. Uh, and I think what I've, just, what I've realized is that, you know, is that I want to do more things indirectly. Uh, and, you know, when, when my younger work, I, you know, I think younger poets have this problem. You know, we want to let people know we're really smart. Look, I'm, I'm not so dumb. I yeah. read all, you know, I've read Elliot too. I've read Ezra Pound, you know, and, I've, and, and, I, and I put a lot of complexity in work. And, and that's what I, the danger I saw being at Harvard is that we were being taught to write poetry to be interpreted. Um, hmm. I'm writing poetry now, or I'm, you know, that I want to register on the very complicated apparatus of human consciousness. I mean, I believe that a poem does not primarily communicate intellectually. It communicates through emotion, through physical imagery, through rhythms that, that talk to the rhythms in your body. It talks to your imagination and intuition. And a lot of times when I write a poem now, uh, you know, I, I leave things out. I mean, one of the, the, if, the, if I was asked the, the two major problems in poetry today is one is that I don't think the music is very interesting for a lot of poems. But the other thing is that the poem tells you too much. Mm. And it'll say, I was in Milwaukee and my girlfriend was Trudy and it was raining and it was late June and I had gone to, you know, party, you know. And after a while, it, the poem could only be about the poet. Right. Where I think you need to give, teach the, tell the reader just enough and uh, entice the reader to collaborate with you in the poem, to bring his or her consciousness into the poem, uh, you have to leave some room for the reader. And I think that's the so, the, so how has my work changed? I think that my work uh, now leaves room for the reader and addresses the reader through the physical senses, through the emotions, through the imagination, uh, a little more subtly than I did when I was a, a callow youth. I see. Yeah, I wonder, it's funny how you said that the young poet needs to sort of announce him or herself. I guess there's, in a way, almost no way to avoid that. Um, well, being a poet is such a sad business. <laughs> you know, you know, nobody hires us, you know, nobody, you know, nobody reads us, and so you're just desperate for somebody to notice you and like true. you. <laughs> and yeah, to be, that is, I think, so true. And you said that your poems... Uh, and I think a lot of people know this. They value narration, emotion, and rhythms and music. Why do you think, uh, and it's kind of maybe for a multitude of reasons, what, why are so many young poets or even poets in general so allergic to these concepts, you think? Well, you know, the, the, one of the, the problems of poetry today, you know, is you want to be a poet and you, you don't want to be alone. You want to be in a culture. So you, you, go, you enter a little subculture where everybody you know is a poet. Yeah. Or a professor, and then you start to it becomes confusing. Then what is the professional standards? What are the artistic standards? What are the? And I think that it, it's it's very easy. You know, and my and I'm sure I myself you know, have not been immune to this. Uh, 
begin to write for uh, the subculture rather than the broader the broader humanity. Right. And, and, and I think it really helps to have somebody in mind when you're writing who's never gone to grad school. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, who doesn't subscribe to Poetry Magazine or the Hudson Review. Right. And, um, you know, which is not, um, I have to say this, I always try to have, I think of, when I write, I have three readers, imaginary readers in mind. Yeah. One is a fellow poet. One is a kid, I think of him as like a Mexican kid about 17, 18, real bright, real literary, you know, in a completely non-literary thing, who's sort of trying to find himself. And then I think of an older person who in midlife has gone through some sorrows. Yeah. And is returning to poetry, you know, looking for the kind of imaginative spiritual clarity that, you know, great poetry provides. And I'm trying to redo a poem that, We'll talk to, we'll invite all three of those people in. Now, right. If they come in, they're going to notice different things. Uh, I mean, you know, I have, my poems are full of things that a poet will see, but, you know, probably this 17-year-old Mexican kid won't see. But I want a poem that makes all three of them feel, feel welcome. And that, 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 that sounds silly, I mean, but I do think in those terms. Uh, you know, which is to say, you know, am I, uh, you know, how do I make a music how do I tell a story that these people, um, you, you know, will arrest these people's you know attention? Right. There's a premise kind of to the argument that the people outside of academia and the professional poetry class, uh, who are pretty much now oblivious to most poetry, why is poetry? Why are they a necessary audience? What are they? What are they and the poet missing out on? By that relationship not existing. Well, I mean, I think when literature, and I'll make it a broader statement, when literature loses its audience, it diminishes literature and it diminishes society. I mean, um, people need what literature provides. And it is the challenge of each generation of new writer to reconnect, you know, with, with, uh, with a broader public. Now, when I say broader public, uh, I, I can. Uh, I don't mean like what you have to. What you write has to be understood by everybody, everywhere, under all circumstances. But there should be something that an alert and curious and intelligent reader, who is not necessarily a literary person, can respond to. And uh, my experience uh, has been that there is actually a very great response when people are doing it well. I mean, we've seen uh, all bunch of readings where there's somebody who's just has got it. And the people line up to buy the books. I mean, uh, and I think most poets will know this. You sell more books outside of school than you do in schools. Right. Right? People in schools have too many books already. But, uh, you know, but there are people out there, you know, so, you know, William Carlos Williams writes about this, that people die every day for what they would find in poetry. They don't need poetry, but they die every day for what they would find there. And I believe that. And I, and I believe, uh, you know, that, that it's a kind of, not just a democratic gesture, uh, right. you know, that, and these people, but it's also spiritual. Right. You know, that, that language is a communal possession. Literature is a communal possession. And we enrich the community by bringing people into it. Just, just as we enrich, one hopes, we enrich their lives. Of course. Well, it sounds too lofty, but, you know, I think it's not, not bad at times to have a little bit of loftiness in your, you know, in your goals. I think... Uh... I can agree with that for sure. Let us go ahead and crack open your new book, Pity the Beautiful, and 
real quick, is there anything, uh, you know, it's a, how did this, uh, how long did it take this book to become a manuscript and what was that process like? Well, this book was, there was almost 11 years between this book and my previous book, Interrogations at Noon, which won the American Book Award. So, I mean, it was, uh, which surprised the hell out of me. I thought there was a joke when they told me I won it. <laughs> uh, but to a certain degree, the American Book Award is the, is the award they give outsiders. <laughs> so, so eventually it made some sense. I was being rewarded for being, you know, uh, the Ben Noir of the establishment. Um, but, I, you know, during seven of those years, I was chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, and I was working quite literally seven days a week. Yeah. Uh, and so I had this, what I did is that for three years in a row, I took my entire two-week vacation uh, by myself on a relatively isolated island uh, in the Pacific Northwest, without electricity, without phones, without you know email and things like that. It was only yeah. I could get away from Washington, and I began to write. And so, and the real question was, could I still write? And huh. I, I know this sounds funny, but I think it's a mistake for a poet ever to take for granted, uh, you know, that the muse still likes you. Yeah. You know, and um, and so I I went and I began and, and after you know you know I began to write I began to write well, and then I just figured I would you know however long it took uh, to do you know to finish the book I would, and and I was very successful you know God you know you know you know you know in you know knows that you know in Washington, right? Uh, and people wanted me to stay in Washington because you know that we need we need capable people running these public institutions, but you know I. I don't like power, you know. I, you know, I can do a public life, but it's not my real life. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I left Washington, and I just tried to basically recreate a life that I could write in. So I, you know, I've got, I have to take a few other gigs to pay the bills, and so I'm teaching one semester a year at USC, which is you know, a, a very supportive. Mm-hmm. For a while, I worked at the Aspen Institute, you know, half time, mm-hmm. uh, and I, you know, and I write. So I just basically. Uh, you know, wrote until I had the book, and I, you know, and it was took, took longer than I wanted, but I wanted the book to be good. So it's when I finished this long narrative poem called "Haunted." Yeah, I knew I had a book, and really after that, I there's only one other poem that I wrote that went into the book. Uh, but it was just it's a matter of you know you got to let the work decide the timetable rather than the timetable decide the work. Yeah, I think a lot of young poets feel forced to uh, produce, produce, produce. Um, yeah, well, you know, Wallace Stevens published his first book uh, about a, a few weeks shy of his 44th birthday. Yeah. Frost published his first book at 39. You know, it takes time to mature, and I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a, I think it's a bad thing that the pressure, the professional pressure that young poets feel to publish a book so that they could they can get, you know, uh, job security. Right. Well, let's look out. Let's take a look at some of these poems and have you read a few before we get going today. And I was hoping we could start out with the very first poem titled "The Present." Okay. Well, this is an example of a poem that would probably have been three times longer yeah. if it had been my first book, "The Present." The present that you gave me months ago is still unopened by our bed. Sealed in its rich blue paper and bright bow. I've even left the card unread and kept the ribbon knotted tight. I needlessly unfold and bring to light the elegant contrivances that hide the costly secret waiting still. 
Thanks. This poem really uh, kind of just blew me away. There's something modest about being the first poem, and yet the subject matter seems enormous and sort of vague. But you know, this idea that that you know sometimes waking what wishes to rest will actually not give us any rest at all, and and the music in the poem, especially the third line, the sealed in its rich blue paper and bright bow with those stresses in succession really give a sense that that thing is tightly uh, packaged. Uh, is there anything you want to say about this poem? Well, I mean, um, it's a poem that, you know, that doesn't give you the answer. Right. And so, you know, I'm really asking the reader to figure out, you know, figure the poem. I'm asking the reader to put their imagination into it. And, um, you know, it's, you know, so, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, the funny thing is that I'm I'm not really a traditionalist uh, in that, you know, my my work really is, is, brings a lot of modernism into it, but that's kind of a modernist poem. And it's Kafka-esque in a, in a tiny, I mean, I'm flattering myself by bringing Kafka, (laughs) but you know, the the kind of ambiguity as a positive force in a work, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, No, I hear what you're saying. I I don't want to, I feel, uh, Always awkward commenting on my, on my own poems. You know? I know. I hear some. I don't know who told me this. I forget. But that sometimes poets are the worst re-readers of their of their poems. But no, I think uh, it's interesting. Just it is ambiguous, and there's a scaffolding of word choices that we can kind of latch onto and climb around the poem. And and I think it's a very. Uh, it kind of sets the book off on a nice uh, on a nice. Tone. Let us uh, let's just flip one more page uh, to the the angel with the broken wing. Yeah, well, uh, this poem probably needs two tiny notes. Sure. First of all, you know, I'm you know, I'm Mexican, and there's a tradition in Mexico and in the Southwest of carving religious images out of wood. Yeah. Most of them are done by folk artists, and so we don't really know the name of the artist that created them. And during the Mexican Revolution, uh, the church was suppressed. The, the, all of the churches were looted and, and most of the statues destroyed. And so, uh, and, and this is about a statue that survived and is now in a museum. So it was made for worship, but now it's made for aesthetic contemplation, and it's spoken by the statue. The angel with the broken wing. I am the angel with the broken wing, the one large statue in this quiet room. The staff finds me too fierce. And so they shut faith's ardor in this air-conditioned tomb. The docents praise my elegant design above the chatter of the gallery. Perhaps I am a masterpiece of sorts, the perfect emblem of futility. Mendoza carved me for a country church. His name's forgotten now, except by me. I stood beside a gilded altar where the hopeless offered God their misery. I heard their women whispering at my feet, prayers for the lost, the dying, and the dead. Their candles stretched my shadow up the wall, and I became the hunger that they fed. I broke my left wing in the revolution. Even a saint can savor irony. When troops were sent to vandalize the chapel, they hit me once. Almost apologetically, for even the godless feel something in a church, a twinge of hope, 
knows what it is? A trembling, unaccounted bugger laws. An ancient memory they can't dismiss. There are so many things I must tell God. The howling of the damned can't reach so high, but I stand like a dead thing nailed to a perch. A crippled saint against a painted sky. You know, the line, there's so many lines in this poem that jump out at me, especially in the third stanza, I stood beside a gilded altar where, and that where, the way it hangs on the on the line like that is amazing. Uh, when troops were sent to vandalize the chapel, they hit me once almost apologetically, for even the godless feel something in a church. Um, I recently listened to the lecture you gave on Christian beauty. I was wondering if you could quickly just talk about how your faith uh, has evolved over time and how it informs you as a poet. Well, you know, I was um, raised Catholic, you know, so the Latin Catholic. I mean, I was raised, you know, had, I had a really good 12th century education, uh, you know, in Latin and in the Latin mass. And, you know, I, over the years, you know, uh, and I sort of drifted from the church in some ways. I never, you know, really broke with it. I'm, uh, the church had always been something that nurtured me. But I got a good education because of nuns and brothers and priests who dedicated their lives to educating the poor, educated me. Um, but, um, you know, as I went along as an artist, you know, I, I really uh, recognized that there were it's a fundamental idea, I think, that's a Catholic idea. It's a Western idea, too, which is that there's a connection between truth and beauty. Now, beauty doesn't mean pretty. I mean, beauty means you know, the, this kind of joy that we get when we get this sudden moment of illumination about the order of nature, the order of the universe, the order of existence. Uh, you know, and, and that, you know, in a sense, the beautiful, it's almost, it's almost, it's almost terrifying at times because it, part of the, of, you know, you stand at the, at the Grand Canyon the beauty that you witness shows the insignificance of the individual human life, the individual human fate. But I've really, um, you know, I mean, I am a Catholic writer, which doesn't mean that I write about religion much. You know, very few of my poems are, you know, in, in any sense overtly about religious, but they're informed by the sense of uh, that we live in this fallen world, that we long for grace, uh, that there is this order in the universe, that there's a, a visible and invisible uh, world that are contingent, that, you know, that we live in time, but we have a sense of, of, of timelessness beyond that. And uh, perhaps most Catholic of all, most Mexican Catholic of all, there's a continuity between the living and the dead. Yes. Uh, and I've lost a lot of people that I love, but there's still presences in my life. Indeed. Um, you know, and that prayer is a kind of meditation you know that you know. That, I mean, Kierkegaard said, "Prayer does not change God, but it changes the one who prays." Right. And I believe that. And so, and so I think that you know, um, I mean, probably my work has has become you know uh, more overtly informed, uh, you know, by a kind of you know by Catholicism. But it, you know, in some ways, it's sort of very much the kind of uh, the tragic sense of life that Unamuno has. Yeah. It's by accepting the tragedy in life in a funny way that makes you joyful. Yeah, you, know, you don't waste life, you know, you know, when you, when, you know. But anyway, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but but uh, sure. you know, but, but you know, I'm I'm a Catholic, and and the Catholicism is my worldview. 
Yeah, I thought we could uh, we could read uh, the next poem, "Shopping," which seems to attack every single every single thing you just said. <laughs> Not the poem, yep. but the act of shopping. And if there's anything you want to say about this poem before you begin it, it is quite the critique of uh, uh, certain behaviors we engage in. Well, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I think our culture at the moment is too uh, obsessed with material overconsumption. You know, we we junk up our lives with things we don't need. We, you know, we you know uh, we spend, we borrow, and this is this takes place uh, in a California shopping center uh, just before Christmas. I don't say it's Christmas per se in the poem, but you can kind of figure that out. Sure. Uh, and uh, it uses religious metaphors in a different way of saying, you know, you know, shopping. I enter the temple of my people that do not pray. I pass the altars of the gods that do not kneel or offer sacrifices proper to the season. Strolling the hushed aisles of the department store, I see visions shining under glass, divinities of leather, gold, and porcelain, shrines of cut crystal, stainless steel, and silicon, but I wander the Arcades of abundance, empty of desire, no credit to my people, envying the acolytes their passionate faith. Blessed are the acquisitive, for theirs is the kingdom of commerce. Redeem me, gods of the mall and marketplace, Mercury, protector of cell phones and fax machines, Venus, patroness of bath and bedroom chains, Tantalus, guardian of the food court. Beguile me with the aromas of coffee, musk, and cinnamon. Surround me with delicately colored soaps and moisturizing creams. Comfort me with posters of children with perfect smiles and pouting teenage models clad in lingerie. I am not made of stone. Show me satins, linen, crepe de chine, and silk. Heaped like cumuli in the morning sky, as if all caravans and argosies ended in this parking lot to fill these stock rooms and loading docks. Sing me the hymns of no cash down in the installment plan of custom fit, remote control, and priced to move. Whisper the blessings of Egyptian cotton, polyester, and cashmere. Tell me in what department my desires shall be found. Because I would buy happiness if I could find it, spend all that I possessed or could borrow, but what can I bring you from these sad emporia? Where in this splendid clutter shall I discover the one true thing? Nothing to carry. I should stroll easily among the crowded countertops and eager cashiers, bypassing the sullen lines and footsore customers, spending only my time, discounting all I see. Instead, I look for you among the pressing crowds, but they know nothing of you. Turning away, carrying their brightly packaged burdens, there is no angel among the vending stalls and signage. Where are you, my fugitive? Without you, there is nothing but the getting and the spending of things that have a price. Why else have I stalked the least arcades, searching the kiosks and the cash machines? Where are you, my errant soul and innermost companion? Are you outside?
outside amid the potted palm trees, bumming a cigarette or joking with the guards? Or are you wandering the parking lot, lost among the rows of Subarus and Audis? Or is it you I catch a sudden glimpse of, smiling behind the greasy window of the bus as it disappears into the evening rush? Thank you. That was great. It's such a busy, busy poem, and it really captures the shopping yeah, experience. And also, I mean, I mean, just to talk about technique, it's a free verse poem, and it just shows you the different kind of that, yeah. you get in free, in, in free verse. You know, different, you know, it's shaped, you know, you know, it's very pointed, shaped free verse, but you know, you, you, it gives you a different kind of music, also a different kind of speed. Right. Yeah, precisely. And the poem, yeah, the poem almost subject matter-wise seems to be commenting on the masking of spiritual homelessness that many of us encounter. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it is. I mean, if you want to, you know, if you want to see what our culture worships, go to an, a, you know, an upper end shopping mall. There's no doubt about that. I was wondering if uh, we can move on to uh, the special treatments ward poem. If there's anything you want to say, that it's a devastatingly moving poem, and I don't think there, it kind of speaks for itself for me anyway. This is the hardest poem I ever wrote. Um, it took me 16 years to finish it. Um, there's two things I should explain about it. One is that um, my first son died when he was four months old of sudden infant death syndrome. And the second is that my second son uh, became seriously ill and was in uh, the, um, you know, basically a ward uh, you know, of kids dying of neurological diseases, mostly brain spinal tumors. He was never facing death, but he was very serious and very fit up. And so, you know, I found myself in this hospital with these kids that were dying and their parents. Mm. And I started writing, but I, but I couldn't bear to write this poem. Whenever I started writing it, and this is very weird because I'm not this kind of person normally. I would freak out. Right. Uh, but the poem, but I would put it away. But then the poem kept wanting to be written, so um, it's in three sections. The first section was the first section I wrote. The other two are the ones that took me years to, to write. The Special Treatments Ward. The title refers to the euphemism, you know. Hmm. Uh, you know, the Special Treatments Ward is really the terminal ward. Right. One. So this is where the children come to die, hidden on the hospital's highest floor. They wear their bandages like uniforms and pull their ivy rigs along the hall with slow and careful steps. Or, bald and pale, they lie in bright pajamas on their bed, watching another world on a screen. Their mothers spend their nights inside the ward, sleeping on chairs that fold out into beds, too small to lie in comfort. Soon they slip beside their children, as if they might mesh those small, bruised bodies back into their flesh. Instinctively, they feel that love so strong protects a child. Each morning proves them wrong. No one chooses to be here. We play the parts that we are given. Horrible as they are, we try to play them well whatever that means. We need to talk, but talking breaks our hearts. Doctors come and go like oracles, their manner cool, 
omniscient and oblique, there is a word that no one ever speaks to. I put this poem aside 12 years ago because I could not bear remembering the faces it evoked, and every line seemed, still seems, so inadequate and grim. What right had I, whose son had walked away, to speak for those who died? And I'll admit I wanted to forget. I'd lost one child and couldn't bear to watch another die. Not just the silent boy who shared our rooms, but even the bird-thin figures dimly glimpsed, shuffling deliberately, disjointedly, like ancient soldiers after a parade. Whatever strength the task required, I lacked. No well-stitched words could suture shut these wounds. So I stopped. But there are poems we do not choose to write. Part 3. The children visit me, not just in dream, appearing suddenly, silently, insistent, unprovoked, unwelcome. They've taken off their milky bandages to show the raw red lesions they still bear. Risen, they are healed, but not made whole. A few I recognize, untouched by years. I cannot name them. Their faces pale and gray, like ashes fallen from a distant fire. What use am I to them? Almost a stranger. I cannot wake them from their satin beds. Why do they seek me? They never speak. And vagrant sorrow cannot bless the dead. Thank you for reading that. Is this the type of poem that when you're in the middle of writing it, it must be so hypersensitive and you're kind of lost in that moment of uh, creation and creativity. And then how does one, and how did you come kind of out of that to objectively sort of look at the poem and edit it? Is this a kind of poem you would definitely show someone else to get some perspective on? Um or is this... No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, the, very, the very final draft I showed somebody, but uh, I wrote this poem in the most painful and inefficient and repetitious way possible. I kept trying to put it down. It kept dragging me back in, and so I just kept working on it. I mean, it went through hundreds of drafts. Right. I mean, I, you know, and, and I finally got it. And I was, what I was really trying to get at, I mean, and that's what the last part is, is what was really happening in my, my imagination, my emotions, my memory. Right. And it was weird. It's not a poem that makes me look very good, I don't think. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, but I was trying to get it because I felt that the the sorrow of these, you know, the pain and loss of these children, the sorrow of their parents needed somebody to witness it. I mean, I, you know, what I, what I realized when I was, uh, and this was the original subject of the poem, which nowhere appears in the final poem. Was that most of the and there's two lines maybe that that say this uh, is that these parents had no language with which to express their sorrow. They're in this American culture which is upbeat, optimistic, practical, material, and their hearts, you know, were being ripped out of their chest, and they they had no language and, and you they just would talk forever. 
because they couldn't they couldn't find the words to express their sorrow right. um, or express express tragedy. And so I was what I was trying to do was to write a poem which, you know, in some ways gave witness in a in a very inadequate uh, you know way to the to the tragedy that was there. You know, um, yeah. because I myself had gone through it. I mean, I knew that, that's what made it so painful with my son as I. You know, I knew what they were going through, and I was going through it in a different way with my son, who you know, who could have been, in some ways, crippled, you know, by the by the you know the problems, you know, the you know, you know anyway, it's a whole other story. Right. So anyway, but I'm glad to have finished it, and I felt like I, you know, I I did what I could for the memory of these of these ghosts. Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary poem, and I think it will be with us for a very a very long time. I I hesitate to even move forward, but. I am curious about the poem that the book is titled after Pity the Beautiful. Um, before you read that, though, I know I stumbled across this charming little video uh, after your poem. I was wondering if you could talk about the production of that video and how that well, came about. There was a, a wonderful filmmaker named Melissa Castor, and she asked if she could film the poem. And so I, you know, I just let, gave her complete artistic freedom. Mm-hmm. Although I agreed to read the poem for her on the soundtrack, uh, and uh, you know, and it was, uh, you know, because I mean, once again, uh, this poem is actually um, inspired by an event that's nowhere mentioned in the poem. And uh, there was a woman who, uh, you know, I knew for many years. I, she and I had got out together when when she was young. She was extraordinarily beautiful. And she was so beautiful that everybody always did everything for her. Mm. You know, they just wanted to, you know, to be in her. You know, men would sort of, you know, uh, you know, you know, would you know would court her and things like that. She was she was a funny, you know, a working class gal, very funny. Uh, you know, and then, you know, she was uh, and she was sort of in a very fast crowd. Uh, and then when her beauty went, she had none of the skills by which you know we homely people deal with the world. Right. And she perished, you know, and I, you know, I, and I happened to, I just, by accident, I just, I heard that she had died like at 52. Mm. I think she did a lot of cocaine, which would have been one of the problems. And I began thinking about that. Now, I don't mention her in the poem, but that's the emotion of the poem is there. And so I'm asking uh, literary people who, are, you know, don't pity anybody but themselves usually, uh, you know, um, um, you know, to, you know, to, you know, to sort of see it as a paradoxical poem, you know, in that sense. Now, um, so, but it's, but I, I left it out because I, because I think everybody knows somebody like this. Yeah. The poem is about all these people, not just uh, Kathy, as the, the, was, was the, the woman's name, um, who I hadn't seen for years and years and years. Huh. Um, the, um, and it also is a poem. Most of my poems begin by saying one thing and then about, you know, then switch. Yeah. I turn, you know, uh, I might just set you up in one way and then sort of follow it in a direction you don't expect. Uh, I wrote this so that it would be as transparent as a popular song. And I also like to do something else in, in, in some poems, which is to use slang. We use slang in music. We use slang in our conversations. But you know, people don't quite know what to do with it in poetry. Yeah. This is a poem that has all kinds of slang in it. Uh, it, should, it should be heard like a song. Pity the beautiful. Pity the beautiful. The dolls and the dishes. The babes with big daddies granting their wishes. Pity the pretty boys. 
the hunks and hollows, the golden lads whom success always follows, the hotties, the knockouts, the tens out of ten, the drop-dead gorgeous, the great leading men. Pity the faded, the bloated, the blousy, the paunchy Adonis whose luck's turned lousy. Pity the gods, no longer divine. Pity the night, the stars lose their shine. Thank you, that was great. I imagine very, like this poem is going to have currency among the very beautiful. And <laughs> pass it back and well, forth. The thing yeah, this poem, people like this poem. I mean, so it's, uh, and, you know, people are, you know, I wrote it for uh, Helen Sung, the jazz composer, set to music, but all these people have always already joined sets to music and stuff. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, you, you know, part of what a poet does is give give people words for, for things we all experience. Uh, you know, and, and the words have your own style and your own slant, but the experience is one that comes out of our common humanity. And let me ask you just real quick, um, what was the idea about titling the whole book after it? Was it a big decision or just kind of like, yeah, that works? Well, um, I, you know, I thought it was, um, was a risk to title the book, you know, after, you know, one of the shortest and most song-like poems. But I figured, you know, if, they don't, if people don't like that poem, they're not going to like my book. <laughs> and it was, and it's, I think it's a pretty good title, Pity the Beautiful. You know, it it's is not, not a title you see every day. This is true. Uh, uh, I wanted to move on, and we'll be wrapping up pretty soon. But uh, the poem, The Apple Orchard, and you've been talking about Rilke a lot. I know he has a poem, uh, I believe, titled The Same. Is there any relationship between these two poems? Well, there's... Or just like know, kinship? I, I, I've saturated myself in Rilke. And so, you know, there's, you know, doing elegies and sonnets to Orpheus are peeking through all over my work. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, this one is, you know, is probably more frosty and, you know, in the yeah. tone. But, you know, but, you know, it really, it, but it's also Catholic. You know, there's a, you know, there's a, it's an Edenic vision in a way. And, you know, I have to understand, I'm a, was raised in the most blighted urban environment you can possibly uh, find. And I really never saw nature right. until I was almost an adult. So this is really about me uh, going up to the, and actually seeing uh, a, you know, a, a spring for the first time in my life. And I'm in the company of a, of a, of a woman or girl I'm, I'm sort of in love with. Yeah. Um, and, and it, and it's, but it takes place years and years later when I'm remembering it. The Apple Orchard. You won't remember it. The apple orchard we wandered through one April afternoon, climbing the hill behind the empty farm. A city boy, I'd never seen a grove burst in full flower or breathed the bittersweet perfume of blossoms mingled with the dust. A quarter mile of trees and fragrant rows arching above us, we walked the aisle alone in spring's ephemeral cathedral. We had the luck, if you can call it that, of having been in love, but never lovers, the bright flame burning, fed by pure desire, nothing consumed, such secrets brought to light. There was a moment 
when I stood behind you, reached out to spin you toward me. But I stopped. What more could I have wanted from that day? Everything, of course. Perhaps that was the point. To learn that what we will not grasp is lost. Thank you. That was, <laughs> that was great. It suddenly occurred to me it is Rilke and that, you know, that Rilke thought the only perfect love was the completely, uh, you know, uh, sort of unconsummated, unhappy love. <laughs> so, so maybe there's a little bit more of the Duino outlet. I hadn't occurred, that, that never occurred to me until you, you, you know, you asked that question. Uh, and, uh, yeah, what's your relationship to nature now, now that you know, do you live well, in any sort of urban uh, environment well, anymore? Well, it's hard for me to. I mean, you know, I, I live out in the country. I spend a couple of hours a day pruning trees, you know, clearing brush. Uh, you know, I've got, um, up in Sonoma County, I have uh, only have native, you know, only trying to get the, the local species yeah. on the property. So I'm actually nurturing some of the, you know, some of the, you know, these rare lupins and things like that. And it's glorious. I, you know, it's much more fun, you know, working with dirt than it is with poetry. <laughs> I mean, you know, because it's, you're, 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 I mean, the, it, you know, if you it's kind of sweet for me. If you're not raised in this, and you discover nature as an adult, the sheer glorious, abundant energy of nature, yeah, is just overwhelming. So I'm a sucker. You know, I'm a Sierra Club sucker these days. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, so I love cities, but I, you know, I, I could never live in New York City again. I think. I think after you know, uh, you know, a certain amount of time, the noise and the and just the, the lack of. Uh, of anything but a man-made structure, right? You know, would would you know would uh, get to me? I just got back from Beijing, you mm-hmm. know, and it was just just too much city for me. I, <laughs> I bet, and uh, and nature seems to invite one to intimately interact with it, like you said, like getting your hands dirty and and kind of inviting communion and inviting uh, just kind of some old-fashioned work and manual competence, which I think brings clarity to a lot of things for for people. Yeah, I mean the tree won't do what you tell it. <laughs> I mean you've got to you've got to once again you've got to collaborate with the tree of doing of make of you know like a lot of times I'll have these trees that are dying trees. Right. And I'm and I'm very good now about knowing how to save a tree. Uh, <laughs> like the tree was struck by lightning or has lost a lot of branches in a storm. And you know you got to you know it's it's the same thing with a poem. I'm, I try to make my poems collaborative, and you know and maybe I've learned that from uh, you know from nature. You know you got you know you work with the, nat- the natural forces. Definitely. Well, the last poem I'm going to have you read is the last poem in the book, and it's called uh, Majority. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm glad that you know we do this because I mean it's it's a, a counterpoint to uh, special treatments award. Um, you know, as I said before. My wife and I lost our first son. It was a lovely little boy, never sick a day in his, you know, in his short life. And then we found him dead in his bed one morning. It oh, was sudden infant death syndrome. Um, and it was devastating. I mean, it changed my whole life. I mean, I think, you know, uh, led me led to me quitting my job and just saying to hell, you know, you know yeah. with it. I'm, I'm going to just, you know, try to make a living as a writer. Um you know, and it probably led, you know, led to me, you know, coming back to California from New yeah. York, all kinds of things. But um, anyone who's lost a child probably knows this very weird thing. I've never seen anybody write about it, which is that, you know, you see kids that are 
the age that your child would be. Right. You say, oh, that's what my son would be. That's what my daughter would be. And so you have this kind of a phantom, uh, you know, life that you you perceive through other children. And that's what this poem is about. It's called Majority. And I use that in the sense of legal majority when, you, when one reaches 21. Yeah. Um, very simple poem. Majority. Now you'd be three, I said to myself, seeing a child born the same summer as you. Now you'd be six or seven or ten. I watched you grow in foreign bodies, leaping into a pool, all laughter, or frowning over a keyboard, but mostly just standing, taller each time. How splendid your most mundane action seemed in these joyful proxies. I often held back tears. Now you are 21. Finally, it makes sense that you have moved away into your own afterlife. And Joya, thank you so much for joining me on New Books and Poetry. Well, John, thank you for uh, inviting me to, to, to visit. You're welcome. Thank you. 